Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for joining me. This is Greg Soden, and I'm here with another great book conversation. On this episode, I welcome Danielle Dulski. Danielle Dulski is an Aquarian mischief maker, painter, and word witch who is the author of several books, including The Holy Wild, The Holy Wild Grimoire, Woman Most Wild, and several more. On this episode, Danielle and I discuss her brand new book, Bones and Honey, a heathen prayer book, out now from New World Library. This book is a witch's devotional, a collection of nature-inspired prayers, incantations, stories, and pagan poetry. This is my third conversation with Danielle since 2018, and it is absolutely wonderful to reconnect and chat about Bones and Honey. You can find her website at danielledulski.com. Enjoy. Danielle Dulski, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me back, Greg. I am delighted that you're here, Danielle. I love our conversations that we've been having on various podcasts over the last several years. Uh, For listeners out there who don't know who you are or maybe haven't heard any of our previous conversations, can you go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit to the audience so they know who you are and what you do? Sure. My name is Danielle Dolsky. I am an author, a painter, a word witch, and a mother of two wild sons, soon to flee the nest. Mm -hmm. Amazing. (laughs) So that's where my heart is right now. (laughs) Fabulous. Well, you and I have, uh, you know, collaborated and and had some wonderful conversations in the past. The first time we ever came across each other was uh, to talk about your book, The Holy Wild, which I put out in October 2018. And then Seasons of Moon and Flame, which we talked about in May of 2020, which was a very strange <laughs> moment in uh, human history. Uh, and I loved that conversation as well for because we talked about the strangeness of that time. Um, but I'm pleased to welcome you back for your new book, Bones and Honey, a heathen prayer book released November 7th, 2023 from our friends at New World Library. Can you go ahead and catch me up a little bit on what your life has been like since you were last here nearly four years ago, if you can believe it? I can't believe it. Yeah, I was thinking about that the last time I spoke with you, it was sort of, uh, you know, in the the very beginning chapter of the global underworld story. And Mm -hmm. now we're maybe, I don't know still in the beginning, I think, but not the first chapter anyway, (laughs) Mm. a few few chapters in. Uh, And I really feel like the changes that's been going on in the global collective or the way I'm receiving them anyway, have been mirrored in my personal life because I have gone through quite a few changes uh, in the past few years. And I think that 
my books have kind of reflected that. So since Seasons of Moon and Flame in 2020, there have been, I did an Oracle deck and then I did the Holy Wild Grimoire mm-hmm. was a, a book I wrote in 2022. And then Bones and Honey just came out this fall. And I think you could almost track like how I've been um, uh, becoming kind of a beast or a monster <laughs> mm. from my writing in those books. So uh, we're in the middle of seeing our oldest son go off to college this summer. And then we're going to be leaving where we've lived for quite a long time. My husband and I moving to the wilds, a very rural area where uh, the Internet and other things are quite questionable. (laughs) Other resources that I'm very used to are questionable. And so uh, I've sort of been knowing that that was going to happen and preparing for that big transition, at least for the past two years and just, yeah, readying myself to really uh, live a much more, I think, simple life. and also kind of terrified and not really sure <laughs> what that's going to look like because I've never really done simple very well. Mm. So we'll see. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I know that we missed uh, talking about the Holy Wild Grimoire, a heathen handbook of magic spells and verses. Um, what was that process like moving from the Holy Wild Grimoire into Bones and Honey? Kind of tell me what, like, what your mindset was like with like... Uh, moving into this new book tell me about the origin of bones and honey if you will from that time period yeah so bones and honey is is a heathen prayer book so it's written very differently from all of my other books and it's in that it doesn't have a lot of spells or rituals in it bones and honey it's really just about these 13 archetypes that i was Mm. looking at as being very medicinal for the world story so thinking about you know where where the world or where an individual might be wounded there's an archetypal medicine that can come through but it usually comes through through art and so we look at the medicine that the world needs and the doors that artists start to open even in very small ways like my heathen prayer book it look as like i'm just kind of cracking the door open a little bit for these the medicine of these 13 archetypes to come through but um so once i named those archetypes then i was able to write the book pretty quickly because it just seemed like uh well it always seems like there's kind of an otherworldly intelligence that comes through me when i'm Mm. writing in a certain way but that way was able to be amplified in just writing these prayers and bones and honey. Like I think about my previous books, you know, they're, they're more traditional nonfiction. So I'm having to kind of step, I call it like uh, a, a kind of spiraling out where I have to really assess and make sure what I'm saying makes sense. <laughs> make yeah. sure I'm u- using, you know, the proper grammar and all of that. You're having to do that a lot in a traditional nonfiction book, but in a book of prayer or poetry, you don't have to do that quite as much. And yet it's kind of like every paragraph really has to be on it because every paragraph is a prayer. So, uh, it was really allowing what I would call my muse to come through in a much more pure and loud way all the way through that book. So I was able to write it surprisingly quickly mm. compared to my other books where I'm having to, you know, 
check my references and do all of those things that we do. Sure. Like, do you, when you're writing in this style, uh, where you're kind of like channeling this energy, do you feel as if you kind of like go to a different place, so to speak? Because um, I've heard about writers talking about the zones that they get into whenever something is just flowing through them. Can you say a little bit more about that? Because I'm super curious about that, how that feels in the moment. Yeah, it, it it's something I think about a lot. I don't really feel like I go to another place. It does feel a bit like a conversation because I can really still sense that, um, you know, academic writer Danielle is there because mm -hmm. she's the one that's having to put the period in the right place and do make sure the sentence is structured in the right way. But then there is this kind of dance between her voice and this other voice that certainly doesn't care about grammar or punctuation. And it's really coming through in terms of the language. So when I'm in that zone, I tend to see what I'm about to write first. So I see it and then I'm kind of describing it. Mm. So that thing that I see, that's what feels like it's coming from something beyond me. Um, what I would call the the wild unseen. And I don't really know where that comes from. I mean, I, I certainly don't necessarily credit it to any single deity or anything. It just mm -hmm. seems like it's it's there and it's deep and it's kind of uh, outside of time, feels like mm -hmm. a timeless vision most of the time. And then, uh, you know, I'm just describing it in the best way I can. And sometimes when you write that way, because I've spoken with other writers who write that way, and they tend to be clairvoyant, they tend to identify as clairvoyant. So be able to see either prophetic visions, things before they happen, or psychically, they can kind of see what's going on with a person if they're standing in front of them. Um, even though it's not uh, necessarily blatant in the material realm, they can see it. So writers that write in that clairvoyant way they aren't really um they usually don't feel like they're completely there when mm. they're writing <laughs> but mm -hmm. they're also not not there and you get this proof that that's true because you'll all of a sudden be typing a word that you just like either you haven't used it in 20 years or you've never thought about it before. It's kind of like when you have that weird initi initiatory experience in a dream where it just gives you proof that dreams are magical because it's like, I have never seen that thing before. And yet it was there in my dream. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, So the, pr the subtitle of the book catches my eye too, uh, as a person who talks about different concepts and different traditions and different, uh, you know, uh, things that people do all around the world. The word heathen stands out to me, the subtitle, A Heathen's Prayer Book. And I'm wondering if you can just say for listeners out there who might be curious about the concept, like what is heathenism like to you in your view, Danielle? Yeah, so the word heathen, so I'm a huge word nerd, yeah. as you might be also. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go for it. I love it. So the word heathen means uh, dweller on the heath. And so heathens were the last, primarily in the Celtic lands, to be colonized or Christianized. So that word heathen, it really just kind of means like the rural people, just like the word pagan means that, you know, the dweller in the country. Mm. So um, when I think about what the word heathen means to me, I do have this little 
ache in my body because my mother used to call me a little heathen when I like didn't want to go to church <laughs> or <laughs> when I was talking during church or doing all of those other very sinful things that a five-year-old <laughs> shouldn't do. I was a little heathen. So I was looking at it like it was a bad thing. Uh, but then, of course, getting older and feeling very um, kind of seduced by witchcraft and the things that were forbidden as a child, um, you know, the word heathen became much more interesting than it was when I was a child and just being called it like it was something derogatory. So heathen to me now is all about constantly, I mean, almost daily asking myself, what does it really mean to live on untamed ground? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my father was a great outlaw <laughs> mm. in that he, he died in 2007. So I can say this now. He did a lot of things that were like <laughs> illegal <Yeah. laughs> and he got away with them. Mm. And he always taught me that you kind of figure out how much you can get away with. I mean, how much you want to do and how much you can get away with and then do that, like go to that edge <laughs> where it's like, this is how much I can get away with. So do that, but don't get caught. And to me, there's something about the word heathen and that it's like, you know, we, we just like in the old fairy tales, the witch lives on the fringes. She doesn't live totally removed from society, but she's not at the center of it either. She's just on the edges where she can kind of see what's going on and kind of witch things from the inside. And I feel like that's what the heathen does also. They're just, you know, the, the dweller on the heath. They're not completely isolated. They're not completely removed, but they're not at the center either. They're mm. in that place where they can kind of uh, have the long vision and see the, you know, more than just what's right in front of them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, well, we're st- we're talking in the morning right now, and in- interestingly to me, Bones and Honey opens with like a reference to the importance of how people start their days, which I really enjoyed. Um, you refer yeah. to the early mornings as our time of ageless wandering, which I really loved that description. I'm wondering, like, just generally, like, how do you start your days? Like, what's your routine like? Um, you know, with your like views on the world and like the the writing that you do tell me a little bit about how you start that ageless wandering moments in your in your day-to-day life yeah well i am a huge word nerd and i'm a huge dream nerd so i do really tend to my dreams before i even get out of bed and then in the moments after so um if my children are here and they haven't gone to school yet they know that the first thing mom asks them in the morning is what did they dream about and then did they write it down Mm. (laughs) and i'm lucky because my older son now is in a psychology course where his assignment for the entire year was to track his dreams so i have like a backup (laughs) from Mm. his teacher um but I think it's Dr. Estes says we all wake up as children. So there is that few minutes where you're kind of still in that alpha state when you wake up, unless you wake up with an alarm, which I'm lucky that I don't usually have to do that. I mean, sometimes I do, but usually I don't. And I can be in that place where I'm just remembering what I dreamt about and really trying to hold on to it and not trying to figure out what it means yet, because it won't mean the same thing to me in that weird upon waking state as it will once I'm coffeed and <laughs> moving mm-hmm. around. And so um, so there's kind of a divide. And, and I also do this practice before I get out of bed where 
I ask the mystery to show me three objects that I will encounter at some point during my day. And so I'll see these three strange things and they are usually strange and they don't usually make sense. But then as the day goes on, I do usually encounter at least one of them. And usually that happens within three hours after waking up and I'll be like, oh, that was that thing. Mm. Um, so that's an important practice. And then in terms of um, my my very disciplined witchcraft after mm -hmm. everybody leaves and my house is empty because I'm also lucky that I do usually have that in the morning. Um, I'll go to my altar and I'll light my candles and I'll sort of set my intention for the day and make offerings to my ancestors and all of that, even though it sounds elaborate, takes just a few minutes. And then after that, I'm ready. Excellent. Yeah. Well, amazing. Um, you mentioned earlier the 13 archetype layout in Bones and Honey. I love this ambitiousness. I love this layout. And I'm wondering if you could just kind of talk about generally the organization of the book of what readers can expect when they kind of start diving into this thing. Yeah. So the each chapter in Bones and Honey is dedicated to a particular archetype that like I said, I was kind of feeling like these are all medicinal archetypes. I on purpose didn't really go into the shadow side of these archetypes, even mm -hmm. though each of those archetypes would have a shadow side, you know, a, a kind of more twisted version <laughs> of that archetype. For instance, the the pagan warrioress. I mean, we, of course, don't want to be at war all the time or engaging in our personal battles all the time. And yet that warriorist archetype can be medicinal when it's about training and preparation and sort of gathering the tools that you need for spiritual initiation, for example. So each of the 13 chapters, they're called the, you know, the book of the pagan warriorist or the book of the wounded healer. Mm -hmm. And then within each book, there are 13 different prayers. And most of those are just one to three paragraph prayers and prayer means earnest request. So these aren't necessarily petitions to a deity, they can be prayers to your future self or to your ancestors or descendants. Um, <clears throat> so those prayers are very like petitions or charms in witchcraft where they are traveling somewhere, but you're kind of deciding what that destination is. So um, uh, my hope was that that would alleviate any tensions around the word prayer. <laughs> Mm -hmm. thinking that it was needed to be to the God of our childhood or something. Um, and some of those prayers are also fairy tales. So retellings of um, mostly familiar, some not, but mostly familiar fairy tales and those stories amplifying those archetypes also. Mm, okay, cool. So uh, something that you and I have chatted about in the past is the the strangeness of uh, the world. Um, <laughs> a lot of the strangeness ha has become a lot more visible uh, post 2020, but it was there was always a lot of strangeness there if you let yourself stop and think about it a lot. Mm -hmm. But you write in this book, there's a quote I love says dire times are marked by the guilt of the visionaries. Love that quote. The book yeah. often refers throughout to like climate collapse, war, pandemic. 
Tell me what you were paying most careful attention to, like with regards to the world while writing Bones and Honey. What what had your attention? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I wrote most of it around this time last year. So around this time in, so around um, January and February of 2023. And I always refer to those months, but especially January as being uh, my kind of witch's dark night of the soul, because that's the month that my birthday is housed in. Mm -hmm. And so I'm needing to kind of manage this um i call it my weeping snow hag archetype mm. and um when i do that i am a, a pretty prolific writer i don't know how great i am in other areas of my life <laughs> but mm. i am able to write really well and so i think that i was probably paying attention to ai and the you know the rise of the robots and the tension between uh, art and i was especially feeling the potential for or the kind of ache that i had around young writers and where i was in my 20s and, and even before that you know writing these things that really were objectively bad <laughs> like they mm. weren't really good pieces of writing and yet i kept going there was something in me that made me kept going and i was thinking about how you know nowadays but of course in the coming years a young poet or a young writer would be able to put you know a few topics into um an AI program and be able to have like this story or this poem or this song generated and it maybe would be objectively better than mm. anything that they could write at that time and how terrible that like a real tragedy that is um so uh I remember just talking to all of my friends about that and really feeling that ache and and we were saying you know if we're going to make whatever our great work is we're going to do our great art we have to do it now yeah. <laughs> because if we don't you know some artificial program might do it for us and of course not as well but they would do it for us so the time is now i was really feeling that sense of urgency in winter and spring of last year for sure yeah yeah um you know thinking about like you know, darkness and times of year, something else that stands out to me in the book is the concept of grief. And I really, this is something that I personally struggle with. Like I've had some losses in the past um, several years that I'm still kind of working my way through. So whenever something involving grief comes up in books or stories or movies that I'm consuming at the time, it kind of grabs my attention. And you had a uh, chapter called The Book of the Bone Witch, which does explicitly deal with grief and, you know, just knowing that I've had like these like losses that I'm personally dealing with, knowing that I'm interested in grief. I'm wondering how you see your work having to having something to offer for someone who is grieving a loss of some kind in their lives. Yeah. Yeah. So the book of the bone, which has prayers for grievers. And I mm -hmm. think that it amplifies the idea that grief is really cyclical. Um, so, you know, the idea that we move through these successive stages of grief and we check them off and then <laughs> we're through it is 
wrong. That's not the, the way grief works. It comes back. Of course, the anniversary of the death, it comes back, it comes back. Um, and really, you know, to live in the world right now and be able to just scroll through traumas on your phone and see, you know, pictures of death just when you're in your kitchen yeah. um, is so war. strange. Uh, and war, yeah, it's strange to, to do that, um, almost because there's no, or partly because there's no barrier. I mean, at least when you're choosing to turn on the news, <laughs> you're pushing the button on the remote control on the TV, you know, you're, you're making a choice to see that, you know, that you're probably not going to see anything amazing if you're turning on the news, but like your phone, you know, you might just be looking to see what your friend's having for lunch. <laughs> yeah. And then you have this terrible image in your, on your screen. So, so yeah, so, you know, grief is ever present these days. And I think that one of the most uh, potent messages around grief for me is that grief most of the time is gratitude. And of course, that's hard to um, hold that tension when you're in an acute stage of grief, because you're not quite there yet. But um, when you're in that cyclical grief, I think that knowing that grief is gratitude, we're grieving because we were grateful for having had that person in our life or that place in our life. Um, Otherwise, we wouldn't be grieving now that they're absent. So um, I think that the prayers in the Book of the Bone, which kind of um, amplify that idea that grief is gratitude and, and, and necessary and not something to run from and, um, yeah, and just ever present. Excellent. Well, another quote you like, you wrote, uh, there are days when our world is a library full of books written by royals and their so-called holy men. But the greatest stories might be those that have been dismissed as tales for children. So I'm curious about what are some of your favorites and uh, what kind of weight you give to like fairy tales and stuff not written by kings and holy men and royals. <laughs> like, tell me about your your appreciation for what inspires you the most. Yeah, I love that question. But I would have a very long answer if I was going to answer it comprehensively. So let me think. Um, I mean, so fairy tales have historically been taken less seriously. And they are looked at as being children's stories. And so five of the, well, maybe more than that, um, some of the prayers in Bones and Honey are these, what I call prayer stories, which are revisioned fairy tales. And most, for the most part, they're not revisioned completely. They are really left relatively intact from their um, original collected version. And while fairy tales were collected primarily by men, like the Brothers Grimm, they were transmitted primarily by women. And so, and every fairy tale has a spell or a ritual or some piece of the old magic in it. Every single one, if you look, it's there. So I love this idea of the grandmother telling her ch her grandchild this seemingly innocuous story um, that really has a spell in it, almost like it's a book of shadows. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't be hunted or it wouldn't be burned because it's just a children's story. Um, and of course, there are instances where fairy tales were outlawed, but for the most part, they were left to live. And so even now, like 
if if I were to write a book that had fairy tale in the title, people would take that less seriously <laughs> mm. if I'm going to write, you know, a heathen prayer book. And so I I'm really attuned to that in my work. Like I can lead a, a workshop or a retreat or an immersion that can really be all about fairy tales, but I can't say fairy tale in the title necessarily, or people just aren't going to take it seriously. There's like that part, there, there's a little bit of a piece of us that I think becomes a child again when we see that um, that title of fairy tale. Yeah. And in a way that's important and we need that because they really speak, these old stories speak to our, our innocence or the archetype of the inner innocent that lives in all of us. But on the other hand, it's not usually our inner child that's signing up for things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So, um, but yeah, I think that especially fairy tales, I mean, myth too, and, and other types of folk tales, but especially fairy tales, they really are something special. And especially for people that, you know, maybe they don't identify as witches, but maybe they're witch curious. <laughs> yeah. There really is um, something to fairy tales as being kind of like an original book of shadows. And that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's it's the middle of winter uh, up here in Buffalo. We get pummeled by by winter. I know that you're on the East Coast as well. This is not a place that has uh, lovely uh, times of this type of year. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> I'm wondering if there's any like of the books that are really important to you that travel like seasonally. Like, does this book have any connections to the various, um, you know, seasons of, of the calendar? Yeah, that's that's a good question because it does. Um I even though I didn't really name that in the book because when I write I almost have to organize my when I, so when I'm writing a book specifically, I have to organize it according to the wheel of the year in my mind just because that's such a primary lens for me that I almost need it to organize my thoughts. And so, like I said, I wrote this book primarily in winter, and yet I didn't want the entire book to appear or seem like it was written by my weeping snow hag, who's mm. just always in these fallow places. I wanted to have, you know, the juiciness and the green moss and the warm yeah. sun in there also. Uh, but I, I did, I organized it. And I think it's, I think it's pretty visible, like the Book of the Bone Witch, for example, that we were talking about, that's very autumn, because um, mm -hmm. that would be the season of, of letting go and watching nature, you know, befriend the following. So that's the Book of the Bone Witch. And then there's some winter in there also. And yeah. then the um, the Book of Wild Lovers, for example, I mean, that has really um, strong spring and summer energy and very yeah. lusty prayers <laughs> <Yeah. there>, uh, <laughs> that wouldn't feel right in winter, in winter, you know, um, not in the same way anyway. So yes, awesome. it, it definitely is. Very cool. You know, I'm wondering if there's any like, uh, activist messages that you're, that you feel like you're really trying to get across within some of your work. Like, what are you really hoping for people who encounter your work, like across any of your work, what are you hoping that they will pay attention to, like socially, environmentally, globally? Is there any like stuff that really uh, you want to get across to your readers as being like an important thing that we should all be paying attention to? Yeah, uh, so many things. Uh, probably most 
um, most importantly, I think is climate collapse. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I know that there's a lot of really um, horrible atrocities going on in the realm of humanity specifically, but without the earth, <laughs> none of those things are really going to matter anymore. So um, I really feel like um, centering, you know, saving the planet and um, befriending uh, really a new relationship between humanity and the beyond human or the more than human, as they say, that that's really what we need to be doing right now. And I think that I really, well, I go back and forth about this, but most of the time, I believe that everyone that's alive right now, I mean, and I mean everyone, mm -hmm. <laughs> even the people that we may not want to be here at the same time as us, mm -hmm. still, everyone who is here kind of chose to be here for a particular reason. And that reason is to play a certain role in the dismantling of systems that need to crumble and the undoing of certain things. And of course, making room for um, the new and the healing to rise. But I hold this knowing my body, I'm an Aquarius. So I think this is an Aquarian thing where I don't really feel like I'm going to see the end of this story. Like, I don't mm. think that I'm going to be on my deathbed and be like, wow, the 2020s were wild. I'm so glad we came out of that. Yeah. <laughs> I really think that in this incarnation, I'm here to see a lot unravel and maybe not necessarily see the new come to pass. I hope that my children or my grandchildren do, but I don't really feel like I get to. So, um, so, you know, I hold the tension of that. And I think that when we have that long vision, then we, of course, believe that the planet is sort of the central thing um, right now. But everybody's here to create their art and do what they need to do. Um, but I do feel there's a grand design afoot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Danielle, I have a random question. Um, mm -hmm. Whenever I think about like, witchcraft and heathenry and just like kind of living on like the spiritual margins of like the u.s i'm always wondering i always think about you um because of our <laughs> conversations over the years but something that i'm really wondering about is how you see what you do and what you care about like depicted on things like tiktok and and instagram um and i'm wondering <laughs> i'm wondering if you have any opinions and thoughts on the way that like what you do as your practices in your life, how that's depicted to the wider world and just any thoughts that, that stem from, from that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I am still largely unbothered by the way, you know, the witch aesthetic is presented on social media um, or witch talk, as they say, I'm, 44. So I'm not on TikTok. Mm. <laughs> and I but I do see what my sons show me sometimes. Um, and, you know, it's like, when you're, you're new to witchcraft, when you're a young witch, you're sort of learning from the places that you can learn from. And so yeah. for me, in the 90s, that was really like the the local witch stores or new age shops. I mean, they weren't local to me, I had to drive to get to them. But mm -hmm. it was asking the shop owner, you know, the person behind the counter, every question that I had, because we didn't really have, well, we didn't have the internet that I could Google things. Um, 
And so I don't really know what it would have looked like for me if I did have those social media resources that a newer witch would have now. I can't say that I wouldn't have, um, you know, made those same strange reels about the spell that I was doing <laughs> or, or all of those things that I maybe as an older, more seasoned, which might disagree with, you know, objectively, but I, I don't necessarily, I don't think they're bad or that they're, you know, making witchcraft too, I don't know, accessible or palatable. Um, I mean, talking about the medicinal archetypes that need to come through in this time of climate collapse, I really feel like the witch archetype is important. So all of those things uh, on social media where we see the prevalence of the witch, I feel like that in the end is good. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't really, it doesn't get to me usually. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Um, you know, I just mentioned a few minutes ago about like you and I are both in the U.S. The spiritual traditions of the United States over the past couple of centuries are probably pretty obvious to most listeners out there by now. And, you know, you've been <laughs> now like writing and 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 making these books for several years and you're really engaged and entrenched in like the writing world and putting ideas out there for people to consider and I'm wondering if you've heard from any readers about what kind of impact your work has had on them as far as like putting these kinds of ideas into the, you know, mainstream American society that people can like, you know, assess their pre-existing spiritual traditions, come to your work and kind of like see what kind of impact you've made on you know, probably like people's lifelong practices. Like, have you heard from readers on how your work has like maybe changed their lives in a couple of ways? Yeah. Um, most frequently I hear that about the Holy Wild. And I don't, I think for the most part, it is people who have, well, specifically women, since it's titled um, A Heathen Bible for the Untamed Woman, it's mostly women who read it. But I, I think they've already, made the choice that they were going to make. So from the stories I've heard, sometimes that choice is, you know, leaving the uh, relationship that wasn't good or quitting the job that was killing them. Or a lot of times it is, it was leaving the church or making some sort of big decision about their spiritual path. But you know, the book didn't make them make that choice. They had already made that choice. And then the book was, um, from what I've heard from people was sort of like the salve that they needed or the permission slip that they didn't know they needed, but the choice had already been made. Um, But it was sort of a way of making it make sense. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The choice that they made. Yeah. I still get those messages. Even though that book came out a while ago. Well, Danielle, what are your plans next? Bones and honey's out. The, the Holy wild grimoire is out. Um, these are very recent books that people can find that are still basically brand new texts. Like your pro your prolific writing nature is just so impressive to me. I didn't, I was like, whenever, whenever uh, your publicist Kim told me that the Holy wild grimoire had come out in between our last cycle and finding bones and honey, I was like, Oh my gosh, Danielle was writing like crazy. I'm wondering what you're working on next. Um, and if you have any plans that you're looking at for the next, like, you know, two to five years, what you got coming up in the pipeline? Oh, two to five years. Wow. Um, 
tend to not think that far ahead. Gotcha. I am writing. I am Condense writing that timeline. I <laughs> don't know who I'll be in five years. Yeah. Um, but I am writing a, a new book that I do. I do think this one will take a, a bit longer. I don't. I don't expect that this one is going to um, be written in a couple of months, like Bones and Honey was. But um, it's about this kind of fairy tale psychology specific to the witch's psyche, and about how those spells are really housed in every single old fairy tale and kind of finding that and honing it and seeing how it's incredibly transformative looking at it through that lens. Um, so as far as writing goes, that's where my mind is right now, but I am on the verge of this incredible transition. So I don't really know exactly what my life is going to look like even a year from now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's going to look very, very different. Um, but but I'm hoping just, you know, so much like slower and better and more simple. But Wonderful. yeah, I'm looking I'm looking to be the witch on the fringes in the old stories. I've been very much in the center of things. I'm looking to kind of move to the outskirts or the borderlands a little bit more. <laughs> I love it. Well, Daniel Dolsky, uh, your new book, Bones and Honey, a heathen prayer book, but also the Holy Wild Grimoire, a heathen handbook of magic spells and verses, among other books that we have chatted about on this podcast over the years, all out from New World Library. I'm delighted to reconnect and catch up after a four-year gap between our last conversation. Thank you so much for your time and energy and stories and hanging out with me. It means a lot. Thank you so much for being here once again. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for having me back, Greg. <laughs>